Scripture reading for this afternoon's worship service is found in Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 13, and reading to the end of chapter 53. The prophecy of Isaiah, beginning with chapter 52 and verse 13. Let us hear the word of God. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. May God bless the reading of his word. Dear congregation, Isaiah 53 is one of the most well-known chapters in the Old Testament. 
It is referred to in the New Testament numerous times. And it has also been used in many lives. People have come to see Jesus as Messiah by it. They have been brought to repentance and saving faith by it. People have been greatly comforted by it and have grown in grace and love by it. It is such a fruitful chapter because of all the descriptive detail it provides of the reality and blessing of Christ's sufferings for sinners. Descriptions which are powerful. It is generally accepted that this servant song, that is what it is considered as, it actually begins at the end of Isaiah 52, where we started reading from verse 13. And the song is split into five stanzas, each with three verses. And the first one is these last three verses uh, that we have read, verses 13 through 15 of Isaiah chapter 52. And these three verses, this first section, is also powerful and important because it puts the whole of chapter 53 into context and and gives the big picture, although with some specific details of its own as well. And so it is well worth considering, and that is what we will do as as that as our text Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. I'll just read those verses again. It says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see, and what they had not heard, they shall consider. Our theme is the prudent suffering servant. The prudent suffering servant, and we will look at that with three points. Uh, His high exaltation, his astonishing sufferings, and his glorious salvation. The prudent suffering servant, his high exaltation, his astonishing sufferings, and his glorious salvation. Isaiah's ministry, typical of the prophets, was one of a message of judgment and restoration. Of judgment, especially by Assyria on Israel, and then by Babylon on Judah for the people's sins. And of restoration, including by Cyrus the Persian, who would restore the remnant to the land by God's mercy. But beyond this outward deliverance, Isaiah predicted something much greater, the accomplishment of a much greater salvation by the coming of one much greater for a much greater problem, their spiritual problem. He spoke of Jesus, a greater servant who would save his people from their sins and bring them into a right relationship with God. As done elsewhere, these two things, this outward and spiritual deliverance, seem blended in Isaiah 52. 
As one commentator says, the deliverance of the Jews out of Babylon is itself applicable to the great salvation Christ has wrought out for us. But we see especially at the end that of this chapter that he is speaking of Christ and of the greater salvation. Because who could deliver them and us, not simply from temporal consequences of our sins, but from eternal consequences? Who could deliver them, not simply from outward bondage, but from spiritual bondage? Who could restore them, not simply to their land, but to God? Who can restore us to God? Who could merit God's favor? Who could take away our sins and make us right with our covenant God, with our Creator, and unite us to Him? Who in the world can be found for that? Who could do this? Who could do the impossible and have success? Well, God, of course, and we know the answer, and God has the answer. God's promises here and elsewhere to them and their fathers of the hope of salvation were not just empty promises. No, but he points them and us to his Son, answer is in his son and he makes this crystal clear here perhaps more clear than in any previous prophecy and so he says behold god is speaking here through isaiah and he he here makes another grand announcement with the word behold pay attention see here is the answer here is something wonderful for you behold my servant we know this refers to Christ as, as other servant prophecies do. The Father would provide Christ to them as his servant to do his great service, to do this great work. But this servant would not only be a man and, and fully man and true and righteous, innocent man, but also God, fully God, as a co-eternal Son of God. And so the man Christ would be a greater servant than any other human in his very person. Behold my servant. All other people indeed are created to be servants of God as well. And everyone would do well to consider that, including those in any positions of authority in the home, in the church, or in the government. The people of Israel and Judah were considered servants of God as well, individually and as a whole. They failed and, and served imperfectly, however, and, and so do we, being sinners. But none, as we see, are as great as, as this servant, not only in his work, but in his very person, and, and not only in his person, but in his work. And this is also why they and we are to consider him as the Father's servant, he was commissioned or appointed to work. As Matthew Henry says, to do his Father's will, to seek his Father's honor, and to serve the interests of his Father's kingdom. And we are called to do the same things in the callings or vocations that we have as well. The, servants, the servant Christ's calling, vocation, Office, however, was unique 
and more special than any other work because he was to do the work of Redeemer, satisfying God's justice for the sins of his people and earning restoration to God and eternal life for us. And this was a necessary work, but one which no one could do, being sinners and mere humans. But whereas we are imperfect servants, even when we are seeking to closely follow and obey the Lord with all our heart, he would be the perfect servant as one who would always deal prudently. And he would be highly exalted for that because he was prudent. Notice our text says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. What does that mean, to deal prudently? Well, it means, for one thing, to act or behave wisely, to act as one ought to act, to act as the Father has called us to act in the calling or callings he has called us to, to act with obedience, commitment, faithfulness, and diligence to God. And here we see, too, that Jesus is indeed the greater David, acting after David's godly example before Saul. For Samuel 18, verse 14 says, And David behaved wisely or prudently in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Having this quality of prudence, perfect and always, Christ would undoubtedly carry out his Father's will and plan of redemption to perfection. But now also, the the word for prudently here actually means more than just to act wisely and so on. It actually means to do so with result, with success, with prosperity. The wise action is needed, and the action leads to that outcome. As someone once said, the word is never applied to such prosperity as a man enjoys without any effort of his own but only to such as he attains by successful action, by such action as is appropriate to the desired and desirable result. And so the servant would, out of love, deal prudently. Christ would act prudently according to his Father's will for his church in his mission of accomplishing redemption, as he would act wisely and prosper. He would prosper, have, he would have complete success in what he was sent to do. And therefore, this would result in his great exaltation, which is emphasized here in this first verse, verse 13, where we see his resultant and high exaltation. It says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Now, these three expressions... Be exalted, be extolled, and be very high are all quite similar in meaning. They can mean in order to be raised up, to be lifted up yet higher, and to be in an exceedingly high position. We can understand this as his exaltation begun, increased, and at its height. Yes, having defeated all his enemies, having won all his battles, having secured Redemption for his people by his great prudence, he would be successful, he would be crowned, and he would reign. Or simply he would resurrect, he would ascend, and he would sit at his father's right hand. 
The New Testament speaks highly of this as well. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11 says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Also Acts 3, verse 13 says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus. Isaiah prophesied of his certain exaltation by his prudence. And the New Testament confirms that this prophecy came true and was fulfilled. Jesus, the Son, became a servant for our redemption. And he not only would be exalted, but he was exalted. And he is still being exalted in the hearts and lives of redeemed sinners, of those in heaven already, and of those on earth. He is even being and will be exalted by those in hell. It says, and of those under the earth, as an expression of hell. Yes, every knee shall bow to him. And so the question comes to us with that, do you also bow to him while you are still on earth? Do you bow to him in repentance and in faith and in service? Do you bow to him as soul-saving Savior and as soul-reigning Lord? Christ, the servant, would be exalted by his acting prudently for the redemption of his people. But what was involved in his acting prudently? By love. What was involved It was not only his perfect obedience to his Father's will, but included in that was his submission to great suffering. And so this is our second point, his astonishing sufferings. This is what Isaiah informed his readers of here in the next verse, verse 14. It says, Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. And so redemption would be by way of Christ the servant's great suffering, by his great inexpressible suffering, that he would suffer on the way to the cross, but especially on the cross for the sins of his people. He would suffer the wrath of Satan, the wrath of wicked men, and especially the wrath of his holy and just Father. He was called to suffer all his life long, but especially at the end, especially on the cross, and especially in those three hours of darkness, which is the equivalent of hell, when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He would be a suffering servant. And this way would be, was, still is, and always will be, Astonishing. The text says, just as many were astonished at you. Now, the you here can be interpreted to refer to Israel, or Judah rather, 
As it is prophesied, they would fall from their glory days with David to exile in Babylon with their land destroyed and them unrecognizable as a people. But it can also be interpreted as referring to Christ, as it usually is. In that case, the servant was being talked about in the previous verse, being spoken to in this phrase, and in the next phrase, he is being talked about again. The sudden change of persons is is actually not unusual among the prophets. In fact, it can be used powerfully. In this case, it can be said that the attention is being drawn to the astonishing sufferings of the servant for our redemption. Now notice it also says, just as many were astonished. Just as many, like as many. Just as many were astonished at you. And then it says, so his visage was marred more than any man. Now I confess that the, con- the connection of these two parts is a little difficult. One way that it can be understood, linking the you to Judah is that the servant would become astonishing by his sufferings, just like and even worse than Judah would become an astonishment to many. But seeing the you as Christ, one way that it can be seen is the comparison that just as many were astonished at him, so many would be astonished at his sufferings. And then the astonishment in the first phrase is actually not over him with his sufferings, but something else, perhaps his birth or his miracles or his teaching, etc. However, the other conclusion, and the more common one, is that the just as many were astonished at you lines up with the next verse instead. The comparison then is that just as many were astonished at the servant so shall he sprinkle many nations. And in this case, the rest of verse 14 is explanative. In other words, we can pretend it is in brackets. It is explanative of what many were astonished at him for, namely his significant sufferings. As it says, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Well, regardless of what position is correct, Christ's sufferings are expressed here. And as expressed, they would certainly be astonishing to many. Many would be struck with wonder. Many would be shocked. Many would be surprised at him. Many who would live at that time, Jews and Romans, who who saw him near the end. Jesus didn't suffer and die in a corner, but, but many saw him. But additionally, many since then, including us, who have not seen but read or heard of him, would be astonished at him. He was and is astonishing, whether one has seen or whether one thinks about him and how greatly he suffered, especially in those last days and hours for the salvation of sinners, all willingly and out of love. Yes, our text says his visage or His appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man. In other words, this is a a very this gives a very strong emphasis of of how significant his his sufferings would be. 
They are indescribable. The point is that they are so great that it would affect his very appearance and, and form. It would be greatly affected. And that is because of all his sufferings that came his way. And as he was on, especially the cross, just think of it. There was his physical sufferings and especially his spiritual sufferings, which were indeed greater than any than that of any other man. Regarding his physical sufferings, we, we think of the toil on his body even before the cross. The toil from all his temptations with Satan, of his nights in prayer, of his fastings, of all his disputes. And then we think of then we think of Gethsemane, where he was greatly sorrowful and sweat great drops of blood because the weight of his people's sins and his father's wrath pressed on him. And then there is Gabbatha and the scourging there that was ordered by Pontius Pilate, his 39 lashings on his bare back. And then he had the crown of thorns pressed on his head and then the soldiers would hit it again and again. And then the third G, it's three Gs, Gethsemane, Gabbatha, and Golgotha. Then the third G, he was laboring his cross up Golgotha. And his agony, we see there was great agony in his being nailed to the cross. And then fighting pain and struggling to breathe while he was hanging in the act of crucifixion. And then greater than all of that, than all of that, if you can imagine, greater, something greater than all of that was his spiritual sufferings, especially in those three hours of darkness when he suffered the forsakenness of all his father's comforts and suffered his heavy wrath, bearing the sins of many. And this too surely then had a very great effect on his body. So truly, his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. What a wonder he would have been to have seen, as he should be to read, to hear, to think about. Many were and would be astonished at him. Have you ever been astonished at this great servant for his great sufferings, his great deformity, his great love, have you been astonished at what he was willing to endure for a sinner like you and like me? He who was the most innocent suffered as the most guilty that the guilty could become innocent. As just one point of application. This would be good to remember in our times of suffering. No, not simply try to, to minimize our sufferings but to count it an honor to have but a taste of that which our Savior experienced for us. His great suffering was the only way for him to accomplish his task given by his Father out of love for his people. And as a prudent servant, that is what he submitted to. That was the way, capped by his surrendering his spirit to his Father, for redemption to be accomplished for sinners like you and me. 
And this brings us to our third point, then, his glorious salvation. Our text goes on and says in the next verse, So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. And so, just as many were or would be astonished at him, so shall he sprinkle many nations. It says he shall sprinkle. This makes us think of baptism and the sprinkling with water and and what that points to, the blood of sprinkling, the blood of Christ. Sprinkling with water or, or even the blood of an animal were Old Testament ceremonial practices by the high priest as well. And what would be sprinkled would become symbolically purified. Likewise, Christ would serve as a high priest and sprinkle the blood of his sacrifice by his spirit. And when the blood of Christ is applied to us, not not physically, which isn't possible, but spiritually by the Holy Spirit in our hearts, then we are purified, we are made clean in God's sight. Yes, truly, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. And we are then forgiven and renewed by the blood and spirit of Christ. We are then justified with God, being sanctified, being made holy in Christ. And how does this happen? Well, it happens by the gospel message also being sprinkled, if you will. The Holy Spirit takes that message and applies the blood of sprinkling to our hearts, changing and saving us. Some people translate this word for sprinkle as startle. And indeed, it is, uh, it, it is indeed startling in a good way to experience God's saving grace. But sprinkling is probably better here. And like many were and would be astonished at the servant for his suffering, likewise many nations would experience this sprinkling, would experience conversions because of it. People from many nations, by the sprinkling of the gospel, would be sprinkled with the blood of Christ in their hearts and forever be astonished at the Savior who bled for them. And this is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that through him all families, all peoples of the earth would be blessed. People before this time were saved too, of course, but mostly only among one nation, one people, the Jews. That also was because of Christ's sacrifice, although not as an after effect of it, but in anticipation of it. But now many people from many nations, other nations, would be saved. As it says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. The verse then expands on this and adds, Kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. This expands the wonder of this gospel reach. Not only will Gentiles from many nations become saved, but it says even kings. Indeed, there is power in the blood. Kings are prophesied to shut their mouths at him. 
Meaning they would stand in awe before him and with repentance and faith. Proud kings would shut their mouths of blasphemy and opposition and be brought to humility and come to respect him. They would no longer have anything to say against him. They would be speechless at his mercy and his grace, at his sacrificial love for sinners like him, like them. They would come to serve him as true servants, just as he was a servant as well as a king himself. And that is because of God's blessing, the fruit of Christ's sacrifice, that they now see and understand and believe what had not been told them before, what they had not heard before. And we trust this has been partially fulfilled already, that there have been kings, rulers, leaders who have become Christians. I found an interesting link on Wikipedia called List of Rulers Who Converted to Christianity. I haven't heard of many of them, to be honest, and I can't testify to the genuineness of their faith. And there are probably more than that are listed. In fact, this verse will continue to be fulfilled until the end of the world. It is a verse that we can pray for rulers all around the world today for our Prime Minister Trudeau, for President Biden, for Mr. Putin, and for many and all others. We can pray that they would be told and hear the gospel, that they would see and understand it and their need for it, that they would shut their mouths at the servant king and come to worship him with repentance, faith, and obedience as his servants. When this verse says kings, though, It can also be understood as more than kings. The greatest of the nations being put for the people of the nations. And so not only kings would shut their mouths, but even kings. And so we can also see the second half of this verse applying to both of the first parts of the verse, not just to kings. We can either say kings including their people, or nations, including their kings, would see and understand what they had never been told or heard before. This is how Paul understood this last part, that it refers to both kings and subjects. We see this in Romans 15, verse 21. He said, starting there at verse 10, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, And then in verse 20 and 21, he said, And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. Now this applies also to us. Concerning believers, we have come to see and understand the gospel because we were told it, We heard it from someone else or from the word itself. And by God's grace, we have believed and our hearts have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. We are recipients of Christ's glorious, saving work. And now we stand in awe of him and are to witness as servants of the greater servant ourselves. But concerning others, God is still at work. 
Christ is still gloriously fulfilling his threefold office. As priest, he is still sprinkling. As king, he is still shutting mouths. And as prophet, he is still speaking the gospel to people, enlightening people who have never been told or heard, who have never truly heard, although they may have heard for many years every Sunday and in their homes as well. Yes, he is still leading sinners to see, to understand their sin and their need for Christ for salvation. And he does that by the ministry of the gospel, by the reading of the scriptures, by gospel preaching and teaching, and by the witnessing by those who have been saved. And the gospel call still goes out to repent towards God and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so a congregation is Christ who you are serving as well. Is Christ who you are trusting. There is salvation in none other. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation, being made right with God, is what we need because of our sins. But salvation is found only in this servant, this prudent, suffering servant, because he obeyed He obediently suffered everything that came his way, especially the wrath of God, to pay the price of redemption. And he was oh so successful in it that he rose from the dead, he ascended on high, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father. Let us behold him. Let us behold him each and every day with eyes of faith. Amen.